danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 353 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Melrose, Massachusetts. I'm Nate Mavis and with me from Owings Mills, Maryland is Andrew Brokus. How are you, Andrew? I'm good. I'm excited to have you on for a, uh, for a strategy segment. Yeah, it's been too long. Life is great, though. Uh, yes, yeah, so we don't, I don't even know who, who the guest is going to be yet. I just wanted to get it to take advantage of this opportunity because we have uh, an, an excellent Nate Mavis uh, question, or you know, a, a question that will certainly benefit from your expertise. Um, and this is coming to us from Cami. He says, uh, I've had a big burning ICM question for a while, and I haven't been sure who to ask. Uh, if your ICM question is burning, you should see a doctor. Uh, but since you and Nate sometimes take on non-hold'em questions, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to consider it. So I think I've mentioned I play a lot of mixed games, 08 in particular these days, but I also play most of the mixed events when they happen during series, and I'm wondering how to adapt, calculate, theorize, ICM, and risk premiums in other games. Uh, this spot came up yesterday. I'm about 20 of 22 in a scoop, uh, the, so like the low buy-in scoop event, eight-game tournament. Um, I only recognize one other name in the lobby, so I'm stoked about this spot, though I'm extremely short. 20 big blinds in PLO, but the very next 10 is triple draw, which plays the biggest out of all the eight games, and I probably won't even have five big blinds, so maybe one hand of betting. Mixed game scoop structures are all turbos these days, even though they don't say so, except at the 1K and higher buy-in, so this tournament has five-minute level, five minute levels. I was playing pretty tight being so short, and I especially usually try to avoid marginal spots in no limit in PLO, given my edge in the other games. So uh, the big stack in the small blind is going to be opening 100% here, as I've probably been overfolding my big blind. Uh, given that range, I wanted to punish with a 3-bet. Uh, I, I know I haven't told you the hand yet. I'm just reading your uh, email first. <laughs> I wanted to punish with a 3-bet rather than flat, given the huge equity any four cards will have in PLO. Though obviously when we are called, that narrows ranges a bit. Um, however, we have an SPR1 on the flop, and while this isn't the best flop in my world, to my mind, it's a definite jam. Uh, so here, the uh, the hand in question, as Cammy said, so she, we, we can wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Let's talk about this hand before we even know what her cards <laughs> okay, are. Okay, sure. Because there's like a lot here already. Okay. Um, I have some things to say, so I'll go first. Yeah, uh, thing number one, I don't think Cammy is literally making this mistake, but I've heard it a lot through the years, and it really can make a difference. Um, people say, oh, the most, the, the implicit reasoning is most opponents will be opening 100%, or the most reasonable strategy here is to open 100%, so I assume that my opponent is opening 100%. And, like, that's just not true, um, almost ever, in an unknown player pool, especially against some random player. So, Cami says that she recognizes only one name from the lobby, so there's a 20 out of 21 chance that this person is unknown. It's just not the case that everybody is opening any four against a tight big blind. It's just not. Maybe it's probably the case, but the weighted average of all the opening ranges you're facing just is not 100% range. And it's not like a small technical point. It makes a real practical difference. There's a big difference between like 90% and 100%. And just a lot of 
opponents are folding deuce deuce seven queen here. So that's the first thing I want to say. You agree? Uh, yes, I think that's that's very well said. And I know, like, just in general, a lot of people will throw around terms. And again, I, I don't think this is literally what Cami is doing, but a lot of people will throw around terms like could have any two cards here or something like that. And, um, you know, I, I know, like, I think people often just mean, like, have a wide range or maybe what they mean by could have any two is, like, maybe, like, will sometimes just, like, play a random hand. But, like, they don't literally think their opponent has a range of 100% of hands or something. And, like, there really is a big difference. Even if you think the person is, like, quite aggressive and might be opening, like, 70% in one spot, that's still a massive difference between, like, 70% and 100%. So I, I think that kind of imprecision uh, is, is, is often a problem for people. Yeah, and, like, I'm not a particularly serious poker player these days in the sense of like doing a lot of work away from the tables. But this used to happen all the time when I would actually put pen to paper about something, I would assume that my opponent had a hundred percent range and a play would be like a little bit good. And then I would narrow that down to 70% and it would be terrible. <laughs> so like, it really makes a difference. Yeah. I mean, those 30% um, of hands are really bad. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so that's the first thing I want to say. The second is that we're going to be talking about ICM in this spot. I'm assuming we're in the money already. So there are 22 left and like, there's just a, a technical point and a psychological point here, which is that once you're in the money, I don't know exactly what the structures are like the pay structures. And we weren't told that, but a lot of times they're very top heavy. So it feels really momentous to advance, but once you've cashed, a lot of the work is already done. So, um, you know, just just playing tight and, and hoping to ladder a bit is is a pretty crude approximation to the correct um, tournament adjustment, and it's often incorrect. Yeah, and I would guess part of what's playing into, uh, and, and this is not literally part of ICM, but it is part of you know, the, the value of survival, is I, you know, I think Cammy is, is rightly predicting, because I believe she has several scoop titles, um, I think Cammy is rightly predicting that she's going to have a pretty big edge over the field. So I think part of it is you know, kind of wanting to, um, to minimize variance or, or preserve survival for that reason. Although that can get complicated because having more chips also enables you to, to apply more of an edge over the field. You know, if, if everyone else has like uh, two or three times as many chips as you do, then like doubling up while it does entail the risk of elimination also means that you're going to get to invest twice as many chips in, you know, plus, plus or potentially invest twice as many chips in plus EV situations going forwards. Yep. Um, so next is the question of, let's say you have a good PLO hand or a pretty good PLO hand. And here's where we should actually reveal the hand, I think. Yes. Um, I, do, do, is there anything you want to say just about that? That Because um, I know you've played a lot of these like eight game or you, know, you have some eight game experience as well about this idea of, um, you know, some games being higher variance than others or sort of your like effective stack size differing quite a bit by game, having a sense that you're better in some games than others, you know, how, how that affects your strategy. Yeah, that's what I was about to talk about. Okay. It, you want to hear the answer? It, it matters a little bit like what our cards are. Yeah, so it, it makes like a really big difference. Um, there are also games that are higher and lower variance and that that matters a lot. And like, yeah, I mean, in, in, a, in a tournament like eight game, also depends a bit how things are playing, but um, a game like Stud High Low uh, um, or like Omaha High Low, like that's Omaha High Low is a very low variance game, and not only does the best hand get some of the pot more often, but 
any hand gets at least half of the pot more often. So if you're coming up to a split pot round, like you, you really care about whether or not you're going to be eliminated. So whether you lose the whole pot. So it matters a lot whether there's a split pot game coming up. It also matters like where your position is. So um, we're about to play triple draw. That's a very high variance game. There's uh, and you know there's there's a lot of betting rounds. Um, we get to play it in position, which is good. But it's not like we're close to the the safe you know gentle waters of Omaha eight or better, limit Omaha eight or better. Um, so that's one thing I want to say. The reason that the cards matter is that it, it all it all gets to this question of how we should punish a perceived wide range. It's not at all clear to me that we should punish with a three bet because when stacks are this short, um, the very Cami tells us that correctly. Any four cards in PLO, hot and cold run pretty well against any other four reasonable cards. So if you three bet, it's going to be pretty hard to get. Um, a fold before the flop. A lot of the reason you fold before the flop in PLO is because of implied odds. Um, and I don't think that drop kicking away your your positional advantage or so much of your positional advantage um, in order to yeah uh, increase your variance also or, or put more money into the pot right now um, when you're going to get called a lot. I'm, I'm not sure that makes as much sense as seeing a flop in position and getting the chance to either fold or or push a perceived edge then yes yeah this again gets down to that like the difference between a 70 percent and a 100 percent opening right? like the the extent to which you have pre-flop fold equity because even some of those bad hands like even some of those hands that might be in the bottom 30 percent that are opening um so cami's actual hand here they uh it, it's folded to the small blind who has um a, a big stack the small blind has like 70, 78 blinds. Um, Cammy has 18 uh, before posting, and then she posts the big blinds, so now she's down to 17 uh, big blinds plus the one she's posted. The small blind min raises, and she has uh, king, king, queen, nine. The king and the nine are clubs, so she has one suit, and, and her hand is king, king, queen, nine. So, um, you know, if, if the, I, I do think the difference of whether Hirder is, is opening, um, I'm not even sure I know enough about being able to like, rattle off the top of my head like what might be a bottom... Uh, a bottom of 30 percent and like queen 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 five it's <laughs> like some like very bad hand yeah, um, it's, it's worse than that yeah yeah it, it, queen 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 five is definitely bottom 30 percent yeah no, I, I was yeah i was just looking for like a safe choice <laughs> yeah 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 um so i mean I, I think like the extent to which you have fold equity probably does depend a lot on like whether he's opening those hands and the other thing i'm not sure off the top of my head is like how well a hand like like how much are you actually benefiting if you do have king king queen nine and, and you can cause here to fold some of the worst hands in, in plo that that he's opening how much is your king king queen nine benefiting from that like i think if he ever has an ace in his hand you're benefiting a lot from that i don't know how many hands uh that would be raised folding would have an ace in them yep i think that's right um and also like if you call and there's an ace on the flop like you're gonna get bluffed sometimes but it's not that bad <laughs> like it's, um, I don't know, calling and proceeding on safe flops seems like a pretty reasonable solution to me. So, um, Cami uh, does three bet. The small blind min raises. Uh, Cami makes it six big blinds. The small blind calls. 
we go to the flop with a stack to pot ratio of almost exactly one, uh, 1.2 million in the pot, 1.238 million in Cammy's stack. The flop is 9-8 deuce rainbow. There are no clubs, so Cammy does not have any flush potential. Um, is there any case, uh, small blind checks, is there any case at this point with an SPR1 for not just uh, jamming it in? Um, I mean, the case would be that you're inducing bluffs and or um, getting called a lot. Like, a lot of the hands that will call will call again later. Is that even true? Um, ba -ba 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 -ba. I mean, so one case is, yeah, with an SPR of one, you have too much hand to fold, probably. Um, you also block a lot of the likely hands that beat you. I mean, here's one kind of case. You block some of the made hands that beat you, and a lot of... There's no flush draw here, right? Uh, there's no flush draw on the flop, no. Yeah, so a lot of the hands that you get called by um, have exactly a pair of eights, or a straight draw, or both. Um... And so, you know, the turn, you'll learn more than your opponent does on the turn in the case that, yeah, I don't know. No, I'm not doing a good job constructing a case for, for not betting. I, I think it's hard to. I mean, just when you have such a low stack to pot ratio, you value e even like small amounts of fold equity. And then also if you're valuing uh, survival, you know, fold equity, like assuming you're not, like there's not really scenarios where you're getting away from this. And maybe if the turn is like an ace and he pots it. But um, for the most part, you're not like getting away from this. So the, the sort of like lowest risk thing to do, I think, is to put your stack in. Like if we assume your stack is, is mostly going in one way or the other, putting it in sooner rather than, you know, thinking in terms of like inducing bluffs or something like that. Um, you know, you're so like for just like not letting an ace roll off. Like if this if this player does just have like it could even be like ace, I don't know ace five five. It's hard not to give him a straight ace five five jack. Um, something where he has like a backdoor straight draw and a live ace or several backdoor straight draws. No, just one one backdoor straight draw and a live ace. Um, you know you are denying you're not denying like a huge amount of equity to that hand, but with the pot being already so large, there's a good amount of value just in like in denying that. Like I think that's just a good general like with a low SPR, you care a lot more about protecting your equity in the pot. Um, relative to other situations where you might be thinking more in terms of, you know, how do I induce from worse or something like that? And also when you are in kind of an ICM situation where you're valuing preserving your survival, then you're more focused on just like locking up the current pot rather than trying to take on additional risk in exchange for additional reward, which is kind of how you would want to think about slow playing, broadly speaking. Mm -hmm. Yep. So yeah, my, my inclination is to say once you've gotten it down to such a low, like if, if, if you were going to be checking a flop like this one, I think you'd want to be calling pre-flop. Uh, you know, if, if your intention is to sort of like how to play a small pot, I think once you've already made the pot large, you might as well protect your equity in it. Yeah. Uh, so Kimmy does shove and uh, gets, well, yeah, shoves, gets it all in against uh ace three six nine with a backdoor flush draw. Um, so Player has, uh, yeah, she's actually doing pretty well against. Oh no, because he has he has the better kicker on the nine. Um, but yeah, I mean she she gets it done. The, actually, this equity calculator makes it look like she's only fifty eight forty two, which is surprising to me. I would have thought she might be a bigger favorite than that. Um, so yeah, she she gets it in yeah. with like a not terribly large edge, uh, which I guess That's... was the thing that she was wondering if there was a way to avoid. 
and does not win. Yeah, I, that's that's one thing I do remember <laughs> from trying to care about PLO once. <laughs> I, I associate this with riding subways. It was when I lived in New York City. I was trying to care about PLO. Uh, yeah, is that when you have a pair, it, like one pair with a, that's tough to improve, like this hand, because we have a pair of kings in our hand, mm-hmm. and and there's and we paired up our nine. One pair with bad chances to improve against one pair with live kickers um, is less good than you think it is. Yeah, that that uh, I guess that, that player did have a backdoor straight and flush draw also. So, um, yeah. So, I guess part of the question is just in in PLO in general, and we actually had an interesting. And I did refer Cammy to this already. Um, quite a while ago, we had um, Ben Yu on the show, uh, who is a very successful um, no limit also, but you know, very successful like PLO and, and mixed game player who was talking about some, um, and we had a strategy segment with him specifically that was about uh, ICM situations in, in PLO, and, and there was a spot where you know, he he believed his opponent could literally not call with any cards. Like, he just felt like he could just jam any two. It was like, you know, on the exact bubble, and uh, the player was like a big stack, and he had him covered, and, um, you know, he, he made, not that your opponents necessarily will do this, but, like, he made the case, I think, pretty convincingly that, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, that that player was even supposed to fold, you know, like, good aces, and that is just like, there's no hand that's that big of a favorite that that player should risk getting eliminated at that moment in the um in the tournament and that doesn't i mean that kind of situation can come up in no limit but not nearly as often because when you have aces in no limit like you are a pretty big favorite against any hand whereas uh, in plo that's not really the case yep yep um so what i actually when i first looked at this hand i, I kind of misread kemi's email and i thought she was saying this was um a no limit omaha eight or better tournament which Generally, you tend to have lower variance in these uh, split pot games because there's a fair chance you can escape with half. But um, she had a hand that doesn't have any low potential, her, her king, king, queen, nine. So I was thinking her three bet was was not very desirable because she would have a lot more incentive to maybe even just fold, like to call preflop. And then if there is a, a low draw on the board to, to possibly just fold to a bet um, rather than try to you know play for, for half. And um, I do think that's like an, an interesting thing when we think about uh, if, you know, for those of us who have learned ICM and risk premium and those kinds of concepts, mostly from a no limit or even from a PLO background where there is no split pots, thinking about how those things apply in, in split pot games, which is also something that, that Cammy was asking about. I mean, I think that the bottom line is just when you have a hand that can win both ways, it's a lot safer to get it in because. Um, the chances of you losing the entire pot are much lower. Even, even if the equity, so even if it is still you have like 58% equity or something, um, the outcome where you lose the entire pot is much less likely than it would be if you got it in as a 58-42 in, in no limiter in PLO. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I, I also want to get back to what we talked about at the beginning, which is like what is like we use ICM as shorthand for tournament adjustments mm-hmm. but like here we're 20th out of 22 i would really want to know more about what the stacks look like at the table and in these eight game events it matters a lot where the big stacks are this comes up all the time in dealer's choice and i seem to be like the only one who was like i've ranted about this on the air before but i played a, a dealer's choice tournament uh the last time i played the world series and i seem to be the only one not choosing big bet games when all the big stacks were like on my left, which seems like the most obvious thing in the world. Yes. Yes. So if it's dealer's choice and you have a pretty good stack, but there are other big stacks on your left and there aren't a lot of big stacks on your right. 
you, you don't want to play big bet poker. Oh yes, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I seem to be the only one. You know, it's, <laughs> I seem to be the only one whose algorithm was not, you know, choose your favorite game. <laughs> uh, right. So, what's my point? My point is, it matters a lot. Like, like when you're thinking about how good the upcoming games are, it matters a lot. Like things that we normally hear about when people are trying to justify bad plays and hold them, like who are the best players and how many chips do they have? How good is doubling up? How bad is having your stack, et cetera. Um, That those things matter a lot more, I think than just thinking about survival at this stage, because we're already in the money, I assume. And because most of the money is likely to be up top. So I guess that's what I would say too, is think about, where the chips are, what games are good in this context, which is something we can't tell you just from the information we have. Yeah, and to be clear, I mean, not that you were saying this, but Cammy uh, was not playing a dealer's choice. Uh, she, she was just playing a game where you know she was she was forced to play whatever game is, is coming up next. And uh, I mean, how relevant do you think that is that uh, the, the triple draw is the game that's coming up next? Does that give her more incentive to um, to push a small edge now? Um. I mean, I would want to know. So we're in the big blind now. So like triple draw where you don't have to play the blinds is is to pay the blinds is like pretty nice uh, because blind stealing goes pretty well in that game, especially in a tournament. Um, so like there are just a lot of really bad hands. And if somebody wants to play back at you, like they either have to just totally snow you, which is not that common at, at low stakes um, or like you see pretty much how bad their hand is at every stage. Um, and there are just a lot of good adjustments you can make. So uh, even very short stacked, I, I really love playing like like the prospect of playing, yes, the small blind, but also, um, you know, button cutoff in, in triple draw. That, that's really nice to me. And I would consider that a very favorable situation. And that would make me not want to bust. Like I would, whether or not it's right, I'm not saying it's right, but I've given you reasons for it. I am just calling this raise before the flop with this hand, I think, in PLO. Yeah, I think maybe even more than the fact that um, the triple draw is coming around is just the fact that, you know, she's not going to be paying another big blind for a while. Uh, so, yeah. you know, it's, uh, preserving a stack here also just means like, getting to play a few hands for cheap or free, um, which, uh, which yeah. is an opportunity you won't have if you lose all your chips now. Yeah, I, I've i heard good play. I mean, this is like 10 years old, but I remember some pretty strong players literally sitting out PLO because, I mean, this was during some World Series when the blinds were like very, very small. And like they looked at PLO and they said like, yeah, I have an edge, but there's a lot of variance and a lot of the hands are out of position. And my, and like, the the blind uh, the just the structure meant that you lost almost nothing by sitting out and like even pretty good Omaha players would like just go take a break and and pay the blinds and be done during during, during PLO uh, they thought that like if they were at a good table it just wasn't worth the variance even in early levels to to play the Omaha at all yeah that doesn't seem unreasonable to me I mean maybe it's worth just like playing your buttons or something but yeah yeah. Um, so I would, I would not be looking to, yeah, King, King, Queen, nine. Um, it's a nice hand. It's a pretty hand, but I'm not looking to inflate the pot in position. It's just with position. Yeah. I don't <sighs> use your position by just calling. I would say Pun- punish, punish with a call, punish with a call. That's what I say. <laughs> put, the, put, 
put that on a t-shirt. Uh, well, thank you, Kim. It was a fascinating question. I'm sorry it took so long to get around to it, but it was really just because uh, I thought it would be valuable to have Nate here, and, and I think it definitely was. Thank you, Nate, for your insight on that. Yes, yes, yes. Also, what's poker? I haven't played in a long time. <laughs> what? Um, do you know what's going on with the um, with the Encore? No, I don't know. I know it's still there, and it's still super weird when you're walking around Somerville and you're seeing those like old sort of dusty houses with like the stained siding and like extremely old Boston. And then you look between two of them and there's like somebody with like their artisanal chicken coop and growing kale in a toilet. And then you look sort of in, in like framed by two of these houses and, and a gray Boston day is like the fucking encore. Why is there an encore there? Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's like, you know, like house, 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 little like delicious Haitian restaurant, house, 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 encore, house, house, house. Very, very, very strange. View. <laughs> I, I'm not used to it yet. And it's been years. Not as strange as riding the orange line one night and being really engaged in work and not knowing that it was opening night of the, the, the casino and like wondering why everybody was wearing really nice clothes on the orange line. It's like very strange, <laughs> not something you usually see. <laughs> Anyhow, no, I don't know. I don't know. I'm pretty sure you can't play poker there right now. That's as much as I know. Hello, everybody. It's Andrew again. Uh, it turns out we are not going to have a guest for this episode. Um, I've had some trouble lining people up, um, and I know it's been a little while since we've put a new episode out, so I'm just going to go ahead and record another uh, strategy segment solo, and this will be a pure strategy episode. Uh, this hand comes to us from David. Uh, who played it in the Sunday $30,000 rebuy tournament on Chico Poker. Uh, Heroes on the button with approximately 20 big blinds. Uh, we're still in the late registration period. Uh, folds around to the hero, who min-raises with 8-6 suited, and the big blind, who has 40 big blinds, calls. So we go heads up to the flop with 5.47 big blinds in the pot, about 18 big blinds remaining in the effective stack. So stack to pot ratio is almost exactly three, just, just barely over three. And the flop is 10 of spades, three of diamonds, deuce of spades. The villain checks. The hero bets one big blind into the 5.5 big blind pot. Uh, the villain calls. Um, so I will say first, I think um, everything up until the C-bet uh, I'm fully on board with. Um, I think that the uh, if certainly you want to be min-raising this, uh, pretty, even even shallow, you're having the button is still extremely valuable. 8-6 suited is a better hand when you're deep. The button is better when you're deep, but it's still worth a uh, min-raise from the button. Um, and the big the 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 C I was not sure about. Um, I checked on PioSalver, and I'll give you the results of this in a second. But let me tell you David's thoughts first. Uh, David says this may be my first mistake. My initial thought was this board would with both of our ranges, so I should leverage position and range advantage as the preflop aggressor by C betting a wide slice of my range. After rethinking my actions throughout the hand, the two-turn nature of the board may give Villain an incentive to continue much wider here, since he may either complete the draw or represent one on the turn and or river, which partially negates my range advantage. As a result, maybe my C-bet frequency should be lower, which would imply I should use a bigger sizing when I do C-bet. <laughs> um, 
So I think it is true that this is a very good flop for the preflop raiser. And uh, I guess kind of the way David puts it, one way of thinking about it is it misses both players' ranges. Um, another way of thinking about it is any flop that's hard to hit is good for the preflop raiser because the preflop raiser doesn't need to hit. The preflop raiser is already starting with a stronger range. And I think David understands this as well. This is what he's talking about when he says, you know, leveraging my, my range advantage by just c-betting small with, you know, a full range or close to full range on this flop. Um, and I think that is exactly the right strategy. Um, there's, you know, uh, people make the mistake of, of asking themselves, which player is more likely to have, you know, like because the big blind could have hands and should have hands, like 10 3 suited, 10 deuce suited, 3 deuce suited, 5 4, 4 6, 5, you know, there are all these hands the big blind can have that do coordinate with this flop that um, are, are presumably not in the buttons opening range. So sometimes people will mistakenly look at this and think, well, this is a flop that favors the big blind. Um, it is. More like the the big blind has more hands that connect with this flop than the button does, but the big blind also has a lot more hands that miss this flop than the button does, and the button has a lot more hands that didn't need to connect with the flop. Right? The button has, I mean, the button has a wide range, so it's not like they're often going to have over pairs and ace ten and stuff like that. But I mean, they they will, and and the big blind because this is only twenty big blinds deep, the big blind has a lot of incentive to re-raise pre-flop. Like the big blind should be re-raising, you know, most if not all of their pairs, a lot of their better Broadway cards. Um, so you know, the, the big blind really shouldn't have like the 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 the, the range golf between the button and the big blind is, is quite significant. And, you know, even assuming the big blind is calling a lot of unpaired hands, um, as they should be, from, you know, getting getting this kind of price and being shallow, uh, they're still going to be folding a lot of 3x and deuce x, right? Like, the, the big blind doesn't fold a lot of hands pre-flop in this situation, but the hands that they do fold um, are disproportionately like 3x and 2x. So this kind of flop is actually really difficult for the big blind to um, to get a piece of. Now, the flush draw does make it, I mean, that gives the big blind one more way that he can connect with the board, but I think it's just, you know, the, the starting point is this is such a difficult flop for him to get a piece of that I think even with the flush draw on there, um, the hero should still be able to bet at, at a high, very high frequency, if not uh, bet full range. Um, especially because I think you're also going to find your average opponent is a little too passive in this spot. So, you know, e even if, if a solver, as, as in fact this one does, like does involve a small checkback frequency, um, it's really like there, there's not going to be hands that strictly prefer checking. Like e every hand that checks is going to be a mixed strategy. It, it's always going to be a mix of like this, you know, some hands do some checking just so you're not too vulnerable to check raises. And if your opponents aren't going to check raise you often enough, then it's not actually important for you to develop those checks. In fact, it's more plus EV for you to just bet those hands. Your, your opponents uh, are not doing the thing that uh, at equilibrium would make you indifferent between betting and checking. So you can just go ahead and, uh, and bet and auto profit from that. Um, so the, the only thing that I wasn't sure about was whether our incentive still wouldn't be to use a slightly larger size than this. You know, it doesn't have to be big. Um, I mean, I guess I, I probably would have done, if there's 7.5 in the pot, I probably would have done like 1.5 or 2 rather than 1, which um, is not really a big difference. Um, 
but when you only have 20 big blinds, you know, saving saving one can, can make a big difference or, or costing one more can make a big difference. So I, I did actually put this into uh, a sovereign. Of course, I have to be extrapolating about what the um, what the, the starting ranges are. You know, I'm, I'm using ranges slightly modified uh, because this is a 20 big blind stack from uh, from Michael Acevedo's Modern Poker Theory, which has some, some solved preflop ranges in it. So, I mean, the, these results could vary depending on you know, what kinds of assumptions you're making about the... Uh, the starting ranges, but I gave the button the opportunity to um, to min bet, to bet a, a bet of uh, one big blind, to bet uh, one third of the pot, which would be uh, like one point seven something like that. Um, or no, it's more than that. Uh, but to bet well one point eight, um, or to bet two thirds of the pot, which would be three point six, or to go all in for about three x pot. And um, it actually does use the min bet size uh, more than any other. So it, it, it is betting 85% of its range. It's um, almost exclusively using the, um, the, the min bet and the one-third pot options. It's like less than 1% of the time is it going all in. Uh, and then about uh, 3% of the time it's using the two-thirds pot size. But it's mostly just betting small. With I mean, like you can kind of simplify the strategy to just like bet small with range and I mean, really, it is, you know, it's 54% betting the, with the min bet and 27% betting for the one-third pot. So it is even using the min bet more than it's using the, um, the, the one-third pot. Um, I was slightly wrong about that there's no hand that strictly prefers checking. Uh, pocket nines without a spade actually is, is a hand that, uh, that strictly checks at... Um, at equilibrium, which I, I didn't think that there would be any. So I mean, there actually is a little bit of incentive, I guess, to have the checkback range because of exactly the pocket nines, no spade. Um, I nonetheless, like, think as a human playing against uh, a probably too passive human, um, I think it would be perfectly reasonable to simplify your strategy to just betting small with your entire range, um, whether small be you know uh, 1.8 or or one big blinds, um, probably not matting terribly much, but the you know one actually is a, a viable strategy. So uh, good on you, David. You uh, you taught me something, prompted me to learn something here. Um, so I just do think it's reasonable, even with the flush draw on the board, uh, quite reasonable for Hero to make this play. And by the way, 8-6 of uh, clubs, which is what the Hero has, um, is also a perfectly reasonable hand for this small bet. It's it's mixing between uh, the, the small bet, the one-third pot bet, and the uh, and the check. They're all viable options for the 8-6 of clubs. But I think the, um, the, the, the small bet is probably best against the human. Um, so the villain calls, and we go to the turn with uh, 7.47 big blinds in the pot, and uh, the turn is the king of diamonds. So we now have uh, 17 big blinds in the effective stack, 7.5 in the pot, and uh, the board is 10 of spades, 3 of diamonds, 2 of spades, king of diamonds. Uh, the villain checks, and the hero bets four big blinds, which is just over half pot. David says, um, I thought this card was good for my range as the preflop aggressor, and that this bet would win the pot a lot. Villain doesn't have a king most of the time and may not want to continue drawing with stacks this shallow. Um, as played, the villain called, making the pot 15.5 big blinds, and uh, there's about 13 remaining in hero stack, which is the effective stack. Um, so I will say it is it is true that this is a very good card for uh, for for the preflop raiser. Like it, it is a card that favors the preflop raiser's uh, 
uh, range. And I'm just uh, looking now, actually, in terms of uh, it is one of the best cards that could have come for the uh, for the hero. And ace is slightly better, but um, yeah, I mean, there's a few cards that are better. Ace is slightly better. A ten is slightly better. Uh, but a king is an excellent card um, for for the hero, and. Um, you can do a fair bit of betting on a king. I will say, you know, it, it's not really enough to just say, this is a good card for me, therefore I bluff. Um, you, know, it, you are going to have a lot of weekends in this situation after betting. Like, so w what's, what's happening, when you when you bet range on the flop, you are leveraging your range advantage. You're, you're essentially like cashing in your range advantage. You, you're not going to continue to have a, a big range advantage going forwards. What's happening is you're getting a lot of um, fold equity. You know, you're, you're getting a lot of profitable bluffs. You're getting a lot of like nice protection bets. You're just getting a lot of fold equity in general um, for a very cheap price by betting the flop. And your opponent is folding away his range disadvantage. So going forward, he is like at the moment that the action goes check bet call, your opponent now has the stronger range. But because you're betting all of your weekend, you're betting your like eight sex of clubs. You know, you're you're, you're betting your, your total um your total nothing ball hands, and uh, your opponent is folding his nothing hands. So he his his range for calling you, even though it's a little bit condensed, like you still have the overpairs and stuff that he doesn't have. So his range is like a little bit condensed, but overall he has a lot more equity than you do once the action goes check that call. So it's not going to be the case that you can just like fire away at any turn card. Even an above average turn card like a king is still, um, I mean, you can do a fair bit of betting on this card, but uh, I mean, Pio is still checking 42% of his range after the action goes check that call. And that's with Pio also having had, you remember, I mean, Pio wasn't actually betting full range on the, on the flop. Pio was already having a 15% check back range on the flop. So Pio's flop betting range is already a little bit stronger than, um, than our heroes if the hero is just betting range. And then um, even, even with that stronger flop betting range, Pio is still checking back. 42% of the time. Um, I also think that your opponent's calling range, like part of part of why we were betting range is the assumption that the villain is probably going to under-defend on this board. Like he's not going to find some of the less intuitive hands that he's maybe supposed to defend with on 10-3-2, on which again means the, the range disparity here is going to be even greater than, than what a PS solver might assume. So I don't think it's the case that you can just kind of blast away with anything you feel like on the turn just because it's a bad card or just because it's a good card for you a bad card for the villain um that said i mean you are indifferent to betting with a lot of your bluffing candidates um you still kind of and i think this is maybe what david is at and like so eight sets of clubs is a is a bluffing candidate like you are indifferent between betting or checking with this hand as you are with most of your weak hands like you you do have uh break even bluffs in this spot your, your opponent can defend often enough that um to, to make bluffing not profitable for you but it won't necessarily be unprofitable for you either so that the equilibrium is you're indifferent between bluffing and i think what david is, is probably doing is Kind of making it, which is how you should handle these situations when, when a solver says that you're indifferent. David is, is making a guess um, that his opponent is probably going to err on the side of folding more than he should on this card, and therefore, you know, just erring on the side himself of betting when he has weak hands. Um, and I do think that's reasonable. I mean, it's a little like. 
I think it's a little generous to yourself to kind of assume that your opponent is overfolding the flop and overfolding the turn. Like, that's kind of rare. Usually, if, if you think the opponent is folding too much on one street, they tend to have, like, a very strong range on the next street. And the king is, I mean, on the one hand, it's a good card for you. On the other hand, it is kind of an obvious bluffing card. So, you know, it's not a guarantee that your opponent is going to give you credit when, when you bet a king. So I guess I would say just, like, do be a little bit careful here. I, I, th I think it's a little hasty to just say, you know, this is a good card for me, therefore I bluff. There, there should be some reason why you're bluffing with your hand and why you, there should be some hands that you're not bluffing with. You know, like you should be able to identify, um, here's an example of a weak hand that I chose not to bluff with because, you know, had bad blockers or, you know, whatever, whatever the reason. Um, in, in theory, like you're not just supposed to be blasting away with everything. Um, the river comes to eight of diamonds, so the final board is ten of spades, three of diamonds, two of spades, king of diamonds, eight of diamonds. Villain now goes into the tank and then makes a dunk bet for 15 big blinds, effectively putting me all in. So this is a 13 big blinds into a 15.5 big blind pot. Uh, David says, I went into the tank as well before deciding to fold. My thinking at the time was the sudden change in villain's aggression may mean he'd made a backdoor flush draw and was worried that he wouldn't get value in the end, as the player pool tends to overcheck the river on this run out. In hindsight, I'm concerned that my fold was really bad. Although villain could have made a backdoor diamond flush, it's slightly more likely he has a busted spade draw and figures his only chance to win the pot is to bluff me off my remaining equity. The perplexing part about this play is that he should know that I would never fold a king, and given that I have a higher percentage of king x on my range, um, may have taken this line, it's possible to stump bet as a creative way to extract value from that part of my range. As mentioned, the overall player pool has a tendency to overcheck a lot of rivers like this one, so villain may figure I'm like most regs and would check back my king x fearing flush. Personally, I wouldn't like checking back with king x in this spot, given how shallow the stacks are, and would probably just show for value. However, Dylan did see me check the river out of position, completing the low end of the straight on an earlier hand, uh, although I believe checking was right in that earlier spot. Um, because the stacks were a lot deeper, you may tag me as a passive rig given that earlier line. Um, I'm curious what you think. Did I make a mess of this hand on the flop and set myself up for failure on the river, or should I be folding or calling on the river facing a dunk bet? Um, I mean, those are all reasonable concerns, and you know, unfortunately, the, uh, the very unsexy answer is it's a mix. Like, you know, as is often the case when you have a bluff catcher facing a bet from a polarized range, um, you are indifferent to calling. The, the fact that you have a pair of eights is not terribly important. Like, you're not, I don't think you're, you're blocking anything uh, especially significant. Um, the villain either has a better hand than yours or he's bluffing. And he, in theory, should be bluffing at a frequency that makes you indifferent to calling with a bluff catcher like this one. So everything that you said is true. Um, there, are, there is some incentive for him to bluff here. There is some incentive for him to value bet here. Uh, I don't have any insight into this player. I, I had forgotten that Chico Poker even existed as a site. So um, I, I certainly don't know anything about like the, the, the player pool. Or um, I guess I do tend to think that like people under bluff rivers in general. I also think, you know, that David seems, I mean, David's kind of implying it's like likely the villain has a spade draw. I think people really like to check raise their spade draws, um, either on, on the flop or the turn. I think if anything, people are sometimes like too aggressive with their spade draws in these spots. So I don't know how likely it is that the villain is, um, is reaching the river with a hand that needs to bluff. You know, I, I do tend to think, if, this is, this is to be clear, this is exploitative thinking now. Um, I, I do tend to think that, when people do the like passive passive aggressive thing, um, that tends to be a sign of strength 
Uh, I agree that this is like kind of an obvious bluff spot from villain's perspective, and like it's certainly conceivable that he's he's bluffing again. Like you're just you're indifferent, and unless you have some insight into his actual, and like it kind of sounds like David doesn't. Like it kind of sounds like David's just sort of not guessing exactly, but just kind of saying like, well, there's some incentive this way, there's some incentive that way, and, and there is, you know, and, that, and that's how you end up with indifference is because players have competing incentives. Your your opponent has competing incentives in terms of like. Well, and I guess in this case, it's complimentary. And suddenly he has hands that wants to bluff, and he has hands that want to value bet, so he bets both of them. Um, and like, it, it's not true that he should never have a donking range on this card. Like, he can do some donk. He has some incentive to check his strong hands. He has some incentive to bet them. Um, he has some incentive to check his weak hands. He has some incentive to bet them. And that's how you end up with mixed strategies. Same thing for you. I mean, you have some incentive to fold because he might be value betting. You have some incentive to call because he might be bluffing. And uh, and, and you end up being indifferent. So unfortunately, I, I know like the river, uh, David, was the part you were probably more interested in about this hand. Um, I don't have a good answer for you concerning that, except, you know, don't lose sleep over because it probably didn't matter what you did. Uh, and I do have good news for you concerning the flop, which is that uh, your your play is uh, gets both the, the PO solver and the thinking poker seal of approval. And and uh, you actually taught me something here. So thank you very much for writing. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, if you enjoy these strategy segments, please do uh, sign up for our Patreon, patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. Uh, and you can get up to five strategy segments a week from us and support the show while you're at it. Thanks for listening. of a car light of the fair passage of a bill and who will sign us into law I know you won't